Ah, the weekend, but there was plenty to hear on RTE Radio 1 during the day. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran, and here's what you might have missed. I'm dyslexic, so I've always, like, words have always been my enemy, and they've always freaked me out a bit. And of course I can read, but I, I didn't read my first book until I was 35. And primarily that's because I fall asleep after 10 pages and I can't focus and the words do weird things. The size of a Toblerone has shrunk considerably over the past decade or so. It was 200 grams back in 2010. It went down to, 20, to 170 grams. Then again, it went from 170 to 150 in 2016. Um, and that was partially achieved by making the gaps between the Alps a little bit bigger. If you uh, get a microfiber cloth and a bucket of warm soapy water, uh, <laughs> tie this to the end of the moss. And we'll start with Morning Ireland. Anya Lawler was reflecting on President Biden's speech at the Oireachtas the evening before. And the second day of President Biden's trip to Ireland was a long one, beginning at Oris Nuchtaroin. In the afternoon, there was the address to the Oireachtas and it was all rounded off by the official banquet at Dublin Castle last night, where President Biden spoke again about what can be achieved when Ireland and the United States work together. I think we really do stand at an inflection point. I've used that phrase several times in talks I've had here. But the decisions we make now are going to determine what the next three or four decades are going to look like. They're going to lay down the path that we're going to follow. Let's remember, no barriers too thick nor too strong for Ireland or the United States of America, especially today. There's nothing, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, there's nothing our nations can achieve if we do it together. I really mean it. And earlier in his address to the Oireachtas, Mr Biden said Ireland and the United States stood together in opposing Russia's war in Ukraine. Ireland and the United States are standing together to oppose Russia's brutal aggression and support the brave people of Ukraine. President Kennedy said 60 years ago, and I quote, Ireland pursues an independent course in foreign policy, but it is not neutral between liberty and tyranny, and it never will be. Thank you for that. Then later, Mary Wilson spoke to Tawnish to Michal Martin to reflect on his time with the President of America. Tawnish to Minister for Foreign Affairs, Michal Martin. Good morning. Good morning. A busy few days, President Biden in Ireland, North and South. And I want to talk about some of the themes of the week with you. But let's start perhaps with a blast of Joe Biden addressing the houses of the Oireachtas yesterday and the Cúpla Fuckle. As the proud son of Catherine Eugenia Finnegan Biden, well, you knew I'd be coming. (laughs) Speaker, chair, Taoiseachs, all. People of Ireland, it's so good to be back in Ireland. If you forgive the poor attempted Irish, Tamaysha Walia, I'm at home. He's at home. Michal Martin, this country, this government, you've had three days now coming into the third day of direct contact hosting the President of the United States. How do you measure that level of connection and that level of influence and access? Well, I think it's a very special week in so far as it it, it captures that very special relationship with this president and indeed with the American people um, in terms of a shared past. And in many ways, it's a tribute to the legacy of that past, given his own personal family story of emigration, which resonates with many, many families and communities communities in Ireland, but it's also a tribute to the rich possibility of the future, which I think he did focus on uh, very significantly. And then it's in, in addition to that, it's about shared values. It's about a faith in the rules-based international order. 
Uh, and given all that's happening in the world today in terms of the war in Ukraine and, and, and the climate change uh, existential challenge that he referred to, that sense of nations being particularly those who are committed to the rules-based order mm. and to a value system is, is, is very, very important. And he did focus a lot over the last number of days on values. And then the issue of peace, 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement, he was very clear on that in terms of his own personal investment in that as a politician, an Irish-American politician, and the need to tend the peace, the need to nurture the peace. And that was a, a clear theme. Mm. And then I was particularly pleased yesterday in, 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 when he referenced the partnership between Ireland and America through USAID and Irish aid in respect of Africa and in respect of food and nutrition and particularly children and our partnership with UNICEF. And of course, a uh, very significant Irish woman, Samantha Power, heading that up. And we're working together collaboratively in dealing with the issue of hunger uh, among children in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa in particular. Um, I'll come back to the Good Friday Agreement because he said before he left Washington that the reason he was coming really was to solidify the peace. Uh, but talking about the, the delegation he has with him, he has a large delegation with him, including his Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, his, his Agriculture uh, Secretary is there as well. Um, why so big a delegation? And has there been business conducted in the margins with members of that delegation, some of them uh, congressional members and former members of Congress? Yes, I mean, uh, Minister McConnell Logue would have met with the Agriculture uh, Secretary Villasac. I would have met with uh, Anthony Blinken um, yesterday morning with, at, at, the, at the Oris, uh, hosted by President Higgins. The Taoiseach would have had a substantive negotiation with President, or not negotiation, sorry, discussions with President Biden. Um, and indeed, I had met with uh, the, the congressional delegation also, uh, would have been with Richie Neal last evening, um, would have met quite a number of the representatives yesterday, but we'll meet them actually, we'll host mm-hmm. I suppose uh, we're all dinner fascinated. for them today, and I think we'll have a good opportunity for discussions. As to how them. this works, you know, is this grip and grin stuff, or, or are there foundations for real business being made? Oh, I think there are foundations for real interaction. Um, now, these are public representatives who are very committed uh, to, to, to Ireland and to the relationship between Ireland and, and, and America in the first instance. And remember, from the United States perspective, uh, the peace process is one of the uh, more successful interventions from an American foreign policy perspective in terms of assisting and, and being um, in, you know, indispensable in terms of bringing peace to the island of Ireland. And mm. that is something that sometimes we underestimate the degree to which others outside of Ireland really um, highlight the significance of the Irish peace process in terms of how you resolve conflict globally uh, and how you can successfully bring values and principles to bear uh, on a situation of conflict and to get a result uh, like we have in Northern Ireland, although not complete, but certainly has transformed the situation for generations of young people mm. on the island of Ireland. And that was very evident in Dundalk. You know, you, you look back 25 years ago, Dundalk, Louth, um, as, as I said myself in welcoming President Biden in Dundalk, peace is not an abstraction in border counties. It's not an abstraction in the north for young people. It's a reality. It's tangible gain. And so many of these politicians are very committed. Also on the issue of the undocumented, um, they're very conscious, particularly those with strong uh, Irish-American um, constituencies, very conscious of the need to try and resolve that once and for all. And then there's the economic relationship between Ireland and the United States, which is a very strong one, bilateral. Tánaiste uh, Michal Martin there. Then Mary spoke to former Taoiseach Enda Kenny. And at last night's official banquet in Dublin Castle, the President paid tribute to former Taoiseach Enda Kenny, who he credited with his first official invite to Ireland. You know, Taoiseach, I want to thank you for the 100,000 welcomes you give me. And I want to get one of your predecessors in real trouble. 
The predecessor was when I was vice president, there was a guy who was a Taoiseach who was over two tables over there, Andrew Kenny. And uh, we've had a I would have a breakfast every, as vice president, I have a breakfast every St. Patrick's Day for those who are the leading Irishmen in the United States Congress, as well as a couple of the prelates who were around who were big supporters, and, and, uh, and the Taoiseach. And uh, Enda came over. I, we did that eight times, I think, uh, while I was there. The sixth time that uh, I had him over, and then I'd walk him over to the White House to meet with the president. And we'd sit with the president. And so I'm sitting where the vice president sits, and the president is where he sits, Obama. And Enda looks at the president and says, for God's sake, Barack, let the boy go home. <laughs> you keep sending him to Iraq and Afghanistan. No, let him go home. And Barack turned around and said, well, go to hell home. Go home. Well, anyway, I want to thank you, pal. Thank you for doing that. And uh, I appreciate it. That was my first uh, legal way to actually come as a sitting vice president. Enda Kenny, former Taoiseach, proud Mayo man. Good morning. Good morning, Mary. That's quite the shout out from Joe Biden, isn't it? Tell us a little bit more about that friendship. Yeah, I met him on many occasions uh, as far away as Tokyo. He was always a person to give real time to Ireland, went out of his way. I remember being in the hotel and found out that he was he was due to arrive in after midnight from the United States. I left a note at the desk. I got a phone call at five o'clock in the morning saying the vice president would like to talk to you. We spent an hour talking about Ireland. Uh, he's, of all the American presidents that I've seen and met, he has been the most active Irishness of them all. A man deeply proud of his faith, deeply proud of his heritage, and has paid tribute to that during his visit here. And I hope that, as a male man myself, that by the time he gets to the Moy River and St. Murodex Cathedral and Ballina this evening, that they will give him one almighty welcome. Well, I'm sure they will. Uh, he's been to Mayo with you before. You're a keen golfer, I hear. How is he on the course? Well, I'll tell you, uh, here's a little story. Uh, I, I played with the then captain of the of the course at Castlebar, Frank Murray. We played uh, Joe Biden as vice president and, and Jimmy, his brother. On the 17th green, we were leading by one. I said to Captain Murray... You know, it wouldn't be right to take a fiver off the vice president of the United States. So he said, I can miss this on the left, which he did. On the 18th green, Joe Biden was left with a 10-foot putt to level the match. Before he hit the ball, he looked me in the eye and said, you know I can do this. And I said, you will. And he did. And when he was elected by 8 million votes of the popular vote in America, I sent him a note. And I said, remember the 18th green in Castlebar? And just as you look me in the eye, you can now look the American people in the eye and say, you know I can do this, and you will. And I do think that the achievements to date of the Biden administration have been seriously underestimated by their impact on global uh, American and European relationships, including Ireland. I think his speech last night and to the Dáil about endless possibility, without instruction or direction, in Northern Ireland, we will stand by you. I've appointed an outstanding trade uh, trade mentor in Joe Kennedy III. If you decide to respond to your people by cooperation, we will stand by that. I think it's a, it's a historic visit, but it's one of endless opportunity. And I've said already uh, in this week, this year, 2023, 
You've had massive business done across the state since St. Patrick's Week. This is the longest presidential visit to the island of Ireland ever. You have 40,000 Americans coming for the big football match later in the summer. And many multinationals saying they're going to continue to invest, continue to expand, create opportunities both ways, Ireland and America. And that's important for Europe. Because when von der Leyen was here just recently, she said Ireland's the role model as to how small countries can grow in a big union. So I think this is a historic occasion. I hope the president enjoys his private visit to Knock, where Monsignor Gibbons will show him around, where he will visit the Mayor Roscommon Hospice, for which he turned the sod when he was uh, vice president, and will enjoy his um, his welcome home to Ballinar. And as I say, I hope they hear the cheers out beyond Rockwall. It'll be nearly as good, will it, and Kenny, as bringing the Sam Maguire to Mayo. <laughs> a future possibility. Well, Mary, who knows? He may well have a message for the Mayo people about that. And a Kenny from Morning Ireland. Then later, Ryan Tuberty was giving us an insight into that speech at Leinster House. So yesterday, I did get um, invited to the visitors' gallery in Leinster House to watch President Biden's speech. We were told to be there for around half two, which is fair enough, because the speech was due at three forty-five. I think he got to the podium at six. <laughs> so uh, we, I didn't mind. I mean, obviously, I was happy. I. They, they, so I got as far as Kildare Street, barriers either end. And I had a, a, a note, which in fairness, the guardie said, you don't, we know who you, you, you know, we know you are, in fairness, you're allowed in. Uh, so I'm very happy to go in and make my way down this empty, have you ever seen them film Vanilla Sky or, or even if you watched The Last of Us, it was like a, an apocalyptic take or, or, or actually, do you remember the real life drama called COVID? It was just like that. Who needs who needs movie references anymore or TV reference? It was like that. Empty, empty, empty and just guardy. So we did, I did a few selfies making our way down the street with all. And then some members of the staff at the Department of Agriculture all came out. We sat alone, had a few pictures and had the crack. It was a beautiful sunny day, beautiful sunny day. And then in the front gate and they said, well, do you want to get, there's a little coffee, like a canteen area while you're waiting because, you, you know, you're, you're, you're well in advance of time. I said, sure went there and met some lovely people um, uh, and uh, I think Margaret, it was Margaret from who served, served us teas and coffees the last time she was there when we did our show from there in 2011 I think it was, it was ages ago, some of the staff were reminiscing about that and she said we need to come back and do another show from there which I'd love, a radio show of course so she was there but also uh, Paul Johnson, the British ambassador to Ireland, lovely man and um, we had a chat with him and John Fitzpatrick, the hotelier uh, who was who, who's very involved in the American Ireland funds and um, Kieran McLaughlin, people like that who are interested uh, in the whole Irish American story, and then uh, uh, Jerry Adams was there and um, Mary Lou Macdonald and Michelle O'Neill and Owen O'Brien, so big Sinn Fein presence there and Mark Senator Mark Daly and Senator Lorraine Clifford Lee and Senator Catherine Arda and. Uh, all these people who you'd know from passing by or interviewing down through the years, everyone in their best bib and tucker, all everyone getting on well with each other. It was, I have to say, cross-party uh, happiness and uh, jollity all around. And lots of American people like uh, I met uh, Gary Hart, who you might remember ran for, ran for the presidency once, and Senator Chris Dodd, and lots of congressmen and women and senators, and, of course, Mark Shriver of the Kennedy uh, family was there, and... Uh, he would have been friend, uh, very friendly with my, my old cousin, Dot Tuberty, who's a pal of Ethel Kennedy. 
of that whole family. So we had a great old conversation about that. And uh, who else? I met I met a heap of um, MLAs uh, uh, from across the border, all of whom were, we did loads of pictures together, all of whom were so pleasant, so charming and so full of chat about this situation and how things are going there. Um, and I must say, I was very struck by how young they were. Lots of, a lot of young people uh, involved in the political system, all elected to public office. And I thought that was really heartening to think that there's a whole other generation of people interested in public service and getting elected and getting involved. So that was great. So there was a lot of chatter. I was sitting beside Michal Og, that is to say Michal Martin Og, lovely man, Michal's son. And his wife was was there too, so we had a great uh, catch up and uh, say saying hello. And she she's great because she knew all the mechani- mechanics behind the scenes of what's going to happen and where people are going to come and go. So that was that was really nice. And um, it was uh, yeah everywhere I looked, people were just pleasant and, and kind. And then what about half six? I managed to get out, uh, said goodbye, and that was that. I went home in the glorious sunshine. So good day all all around and well organised, well run in Leinster House and well covered. I think the coverage today is so much more positive than it was on Monday. It's strange. They, they, it, it's not strange in a bad way. It's strange in a great way that people seem to buy into it. And in all the, in the papers and online, everyone's kind of saying, you know what, it wasn't a bad thing in the end. I think initially there was a bit of like, why was you coming over? Why would you bother? And it's now turned into, no, you know, I think the, it's, it, the coverage today is more in step with what most people are thinking, which was, this is a good thing and it's a positive thing. Ryan Tuberty in the morning, then later on the News at One, former President Mary Robinson in Ballina. Uh, we, we see Air Force One very shortly now. We expect it to take off. So very soon, within the next half hour or 40 minutes, Joe Biden will be touching down uh, in, in Mayo and, and you'll have that opportunity to welcome him to, to Ballina. How important an occasion is this for, for the people of Mayo and particularly for the people of Ballina? Well, it's very important uh, to Ballina uh, that he's coming back for the third time. He came back as vice president, he came back on a family visit, and now he's coming as president. And the town is full of excitement. Uh, the excitement in Ballina, which I saw yesterday morning, was palpable. Mm-hmm. And then I travelled to Dublin, and I had a good, warm greeting with President Biden um, at the dinner, which he arrived very late for, I have to say, um, in Dublin Castle. And... Uh, I told told him that I've actually brought the light in the window, the famous light in the window, down to Ballina so that it will now be housed in the Mary Robinson Centre, meaning our family home uh, across the River Moy, just opposite where he will be speaking. Um, It has been converted uh, recently into the Mary Robinson Centre. It will celebrate human rights, um, women's uh, leadership, gender equality, um, uh, peace, climate justice, inclusiveness, etc. And that light will help. Mm. Um, and so he, I think he'll mention the light when he speaks because we, we, we were in tune last night. <laughs> now, you're also, you're also going to be reciting a poem by the, the late and indeed your great friend, Ivan Boland, ahead of his speech. How, how did that come about? Um, we, 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 well, you were I was asked. Delighted to be in, yeah, I was delighted to be invited um, to recite this poem it's, a, it's the Emigrant Irish. It's a poem I know well from Ivan. Uh, we were very close friends. She stayed with me, in fact, in Balna. And it's not an easy poem because it's a poem before we appreciate it, the Irish emigrants. 
So when I'm introducing it, I will say this. You know, we didn't always value our immigrants who had to leave because of poverty, who had to leave because of conflict, who had to leave because of sexual orientation, whatever the reason. Mm. Uh, we didn't value them enough. Now we do. Now we've learned, thankfully. Mm. It's a new era where we do fully understand this extended Irish family. And I think my light in the window helped and lots of other people helped. I'm just watching the pictures from Dublin Airport as we speak. Uh, Mrs Robinson and the aircraft Air Force One now is making its way um, across the uh, the apron uh, towards the, the runway, ready to, ready to take off. And that will, I think, perhaps... Uh, just be in the next um, couple of uh, minutes. Um, just a word about the visit overall. You've been, you were there, as you said, at Dublin Castle last night. You heard the president's speech and the Taoiseach's reply. You heard what he had to say earlier this week in Belfast at Ulster University and his speech, of course, to the joint houses of the Oireachtas. How do you how do you assess how this visit has gone? I think President Biden has managed to uh, link in. Um, a clear pleasure and joy and happiness as an individual, as an Irish-rooted president, being back home, as he says, with serious messages. Serious messages in Ulster University calling for um, power sharing, but not putting undue pressure on the DUP, which would not be helpful. Emphasising the importance of Ireland's role in relation to Ukraine, um, the way in which... Uh, we have helped to um, even pass a, a UN mm. um, Security Council resolution. I noted that because I know the work Ireland did on the Security Council, uh, which helped to uh, do something very important, that sanctions would not prevent human humanitarian relief. Mm. That's really very important and, globally. And, the and fact Ireland... And the United States achieved that. Yeah, and the fact that he, he highlighted among his themes in the Doyle speech yesterday, or the Erupta speech, um, yeah. climate change and the challenges of food security. That's right. And climate change and, um, and workers' rights. You know, he talked about um, the um, economic development, but he said it will also include the rights of workers being respected. That is so important for a United States president uh, in, you know, in our world today that we understand the rights of workers. Um, but yes, he did. He spoke about uh, climate change um, and he spoke about AI, um, you know, about the enormous promise and the enormous um, concern. Um, uh, he, he talked about it as an inflection point. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, he, he had the ability to have serious messages among all the folksy being at home with the Irish, um, which we love. Right. But, you know, the serious messages were there. Mary Robinson with Brian Dobson on the News at One. And then on the live line, Katie Hannan was talking to a very patient Mildred waiting in Ballina. And Mildred, you're great because you are in Ballina waiting for I the man himself. Mr. Joe Biden, I met him twice, thanks be to God, but there's nothing like meeting him a third time. So I'm hoping to the Lord I'll meet him. So I'm, I'm, I'm in the best place possible. I'm right across from the cathedral. So I'm, I'm very, very lucky. Great stuff. We'll talk to you about that maybe in a minute. But Mildred, yes. there's a little fly in the ointment today because <clears throat> there's been quite the reaction to this 
cartoon that appeared in the Times, the London Times newspaper we're talking about yeah, now. Yeah. And this yeah, is, I'll just, yeah. I'll explain it to me. We put it up on, on our own Twitter feed there just yeah, in case yeah, people I, didn't take the Times. Yeah, yeah, let yeah, me just, let me, let me explain it to people, Mildred, in case they haven't seen it. So it's, yeah. it's about the Biden visit and it yeah. shows basically three... Bidens, uh, dressed yes. up as leprechauns, dancing a jig uh, with pints of Guinness in their hands. And it says, I just love, and it says Northern very quietly and Ireland very, very loudly. And we're told by Peter Brook, who's the cartoonist who drew it, that it was about the emphasis by, I think uh, he said uh, the emphasis by um, Blarney Biden, I think was it. I don't have it in front of me now. That's what. Uh, that that's why he put this uh, cartoon and drew this cartoon yes. in this way. You didn't like yes. that cartoon, Mildred. No, no, I didn't. Uh, uh, if he thought he was being funny, he wasn't, because not alone is it a slag on Biden, but it's a slag on Ireland and our Irish dancing, which has which has been all over the world and admired and enjoyed all over the world. And shame on him, and that he's insulting not alone, he's insulting the Americans and Mr. Biden, but he's insulting us Irish people. Who, who, believe it or believe it not, whether he likes it or not, built Britain for them. That went over to England and built a shame on them for making a skit of our lovely, beautiful Irish dancing and, and our lovely president that took his time to come out here. Shame on him. And I tell you, because I know you're not the only one who took umbrage to that now, Mildred. There's been a huge reaction to it online with the, you know, I don't blame all I sorts blame of. Them, yeah. <clears throat> one of the lines that jumped out at me was 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 Philip Nolan, who's a, a journalist uh, here, and he 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 said, "Punch called," and he's talking about, of course, that Punch magazine, and he said, yeah. "They uh, they uh, they." Um, 90, what does it say? They want you back in 1867. So he's basically saying it goes back to those days of those racist cartoons in Punch magazine, uh, that that's how bad it was. But a huge number of people saying it was stereotypical, it was anti-Catholic, anti-Irish. Uh, Anti-everything, anti anti-everything. But then would you be surprised with them? Would you, I mean, they're just jealous because we have such a great relationship with America and with Mr. Biden. And they're just jealous about that. And maybe if they got down off their high horses, then would, they'd be just as, as, as friendly with Mr. Biden. A shame on whoever. He should be ashamed to do that on a, on a week that's in it. Mildred on the live line with Katie Hannon. And on the Today programme, Philip Badger Hayes was talking to business journalist Adam McGuire about this modern phenomenon, shrinkflation. Now, does your favourite childhood chocolate bar or biscuit packet seem smaller than it used to? Or perhaps that bottle of shampoo or conditioner isn't going quite as far as it used to, while prices seem to be staying the same or maybe even rising? It may not all be your imagination, as shrinkflation is very real. That's the practice of making the product smaller while keeping prices the same. To tell us more, I'm joined now by Adam McGuire, RTE business journalist. Adam, who first came up with the term shrinkflation? How long ago was that? It's actually a relatively new term. It's attributed to uh, economist Pippa Malgren, who first used it in 2015. But the actual practice goes way back beyond that. But the term itself is relatively new. And what is it? Well, people are, are unfortunately all too familiar now with an inflation, the price rising. But shrinkflation is, is kind of the covert cousin. So as you say, it's the practice of making the product itself smaller while keeping the price the same or or maybe cutting it but not by as much as you've cut the size. So you're effectively raising the price because you're paying more per gram or per litre but it's it's harder to spot because you really have to be 
paying close attention. So when people do that nostalgic back in my day thing and start getting all Brexity on, on this occasion, <laughs> they're right. About certain things, yeah, they are. If you remember a curly whirly being the size of a small ladder, it's not entirely <laughs> because your mind is playing tricks. And you, the likes of chocolate bars have definitely been progressively getting smaller over the years. And for whatever reason, that's probably the type of product people notice most, but it does happen across all types of consumer goods. A study by the Office for National Statistics in the UK, their version of the Central Statistics Office, identified 2,529 products that shrank in size between January 2012 and June 2017. And because they're common consumer goods in Britain, it, it means that they're generally common consumer goods here as well. And it found that when the products got smaller, the price tended to stay the same. It should be said this study also identified cases where the product increased and the price stayed the same. So uh, it, that does happen in the other direction, but it's much more common for it to shrink and the, and the price to stay the same. Where is it most common, Adam? What area or class of consumer goods? Well, according to that ONS survey, food and drink accounted for most of the decreases in product sizes. About 71% of, of what they found were food and drink products. That category, though, also accounted for the, 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 the most cases where the product size increased, 70% there as well. Um, shrinkflation mo most common amongst bread, cereals, meat and then a lot of sugar heavy products like jams, syrups, sweets um, outside then of food and drink the likes of, of toilet rolls, nappies, tissues things like that were most likely to see shrinkflation also other common household goods like kitchen roll, washing up liquid and so on So give us some more examples then Yeah there's plenty to choose from I suppose the best way of looking at it is, is to, to identify some of the different ways that, that shrinkflation is achieved so back in 2017 McVitie's reduced the number of Jaffa cakes in a standard packet from 12 to 10. So you simply got fewer biscuits or, or cakes depending on, on your religion and inside the box there. Uh, the size of a Toblerone has shrunk considerably over the past decade or so. It was 200 grams back in 2010. It went down to, 20, to 170 grams. Then again, it went from 170 to 150 in 2016. Um, and that was partially achieved by making the gaps between the Alps <laughs> a little bit bigger. Uh, so you might have noticed that you yeah. know there's, there's, there's a bigger range it, between it them. It sounds like the most <laughs> cynical thing in the world to do. But in fairness to the manufacturers, they were doing an awful lot of reformulation of their product uh over the course of the last five or ten years so that it was, you know, better in line with dietary guidelines at the time because nobody had any business sitting down and eating 200 grams of a Toblerone well, in supposed, a single sitting. You were supposed to share it. That was the idea. Although you might no. have noticed the small print. No. <laughs> but, no. Yeah. no that, 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 is, that is part of it, uh, definitely. But I suppose the issue is that the, when the price stays the same and the product shrinks, then, you know, there's, there's well, a difference being pocketed there as well. that's just a response to inflation, isn't but, it? Anyway, go we, on. Yeah, no, well, I mean, there's plenty of other examples as well. Like in and smoothies they used to sell one litre cartons of of, of, uh, of juice now it's 750 mils standard size uh, back in 2017 P&G took 21 sheets off each roll of, of Andrex toilet paper oh, meaning uh, consumers were effectively getting two rolls fewer in a pack of, 12, of 16 and in the past year consumers have probably been hitting the double because prices are of course going up but we're also seeing shrinkflation uh, continue McVitie's a culprit again uh, three biscuits taken out of a packet of digestives in recent weeks a uh, packet of Cadbury's buttons have shrunk by around 23%. So in some cases, people are actually paying more at the till, but they're actually getting less in, the, in, in their pocket as well. And as Adam tells us, shrinkflation is not new. 
Perhaps the oldest recorded example of shrinkflation goes back to French bakers in the 18th century. Uh, they were expected to charge a just price for their bread and uh, they knew that if they increased the price of, of a loaf of bread there'd be riots and they'd probably end up getting killed themselves so best avoided. But of course the price of flour would go up and down so you know they can't be expected just to, to swallow that difference. Uh, so it was Are generally you shrinkflation led to the French Revolution? No, it just came a little bit <laughs> it was separate to this but, uh, but it, it was generally accepted that even though you couldn't change the price, the, the loaf might get smaller. So okay. someday you'll buy it at a smaller loaf of bread. Now, consumer brands probably don't have to worry about people rioting on the streets if they raise their prices now, but they're aware of just how price conscious consumers are, especially at the moment. We're, we're all very sensitive to, to our budgets uh, and they don't want to do something that's going to put someone off making a, a purchase, which is certainly more likely in a luxury item like chocolate that you just won't buy it at all. Or maybe you go to the competition and then you don't come back because you decide this product is better or better value. Um, and so shrinkflation is a way of raising the price in a way that's a little bit under the radar uh, and uh, you know we just don't notice it most of the time we, we eventually do but we you know in the immediate here and now we probably don't you know I, I don't know but you I don't tend to count the number of sheets on my toilet roll so I don't notice it shrinking very very slightly and I'm not going to notice that I'm effectively paying more and in that instance actually with the toilet roll uh, the company also did cut the price but not by as much as they cut the product by so customers thought oh, I'm actually getting a better deal now but they're actually yeah. paying a little bit more no, we reason. are not counting the number of sheets or nor are we measuring the distance between the Alps and our Toblerone bar um, but we are counting the pence left in our pocket and it is having a real effect. Yeah because you know it might sound a bit insignificant to have you know one or two biscuits fewer in, in a packet but you know when you do the sums it is actually a significant difference so taking that the Jaffa Cakes two Jaffa Cakes out of the packet doesn't sound like a big deal but it's equivalent to a 16.6% increase in the price per per cake. Uh, a Toblerone now effectively costs 25% more than it did in 2010, not counting any actual change in the price, which has probably gone up as well in the meantime. Uh, if they just jacked the price up by 25%, people might have just decided mm. not to buy it at all. And, you know, it's it's possible obviously to make that decision when it comes to luxuries like chocolate that I'm just not going to spend my money because it's too expensive. But when you're talking about basic household items like the toilet roll, you, you kind of don't have a choice. So by reducing the amount of paper in a, in a toilet roll packet by 10%, you're you're forcing people to buy toilet rolls more often or to buy more of them. And the same goes for kitchen roll, you know, cling film, tinfoil, all those cleaning products and so on. So it's part of the reason why people will feel like their euro isn't quite going as far as it used to, even though they're buying the same product, they're spending the same amount of money on it, but they're just not getting quite as much out of it as they were before. And when they're snared, do they have a defence for it? Yeah, well, well, you, you touched on it yourself with this reformulation and, and because food companies are the main culprits of shrinkflation, food and drink companies, um, but they're not purely doing it out of profit seeking you know, in, uh, the Food Safety Authority has a reformulation a food reformulation roadmap which runs to 2025 it is voluntary but the aim is to get companies to reduce some of the stuff that's you know bad for us in excess in, in our food and drink so it wants a 10% reduction in salt in uh, some of the most common foods 20% reduction in sugar 10% reduction in saturated fat and overall and this is kind of one of the key ones it wants a 20% reduction in calories in products that contribute most to childhood obesity so for certain food types that means changing out ingredients or, or you know changing the recipe slightly so that it has less salt or sugar but when you come to things like chocolate you know there are attempts to reduce the amount of sugar or fat in chocolate but it, it's hard to do it without making it taste substantially different and some would say substantially uh, worse so the solution for them is portion size make the portion size smaller so if you want to reduce the calories in a chocolate bar by 20% you give 
the consumer 20% less chocolate as a result of that. And anecdotally, people will say they actually don't mind their Easter egg being a little bit smaller, especially their kids' Easter eggs, because they get so many of them and maybe it's better not to eat so much chocolate in one go. Uh, The problem, though, is that whatever the reason, and even if it's kind of good for us, we're still, the price isn't being cut or cut by as much. So the consumer is still, you know, picking up the tab for this. Adam McGuire with Philip Adger Hayes in the morning. And in the afternoon, Catherine Thomas was catching up with chef and now author Jamie Oliver. Now I am so looking forward to chatting to my next guest, chef and restaurateur Jamie Oliver. He is a global phenomenon, starting out as the Naked Chef. He has sold more than 48 million books worldwide. He's an avid campaigner and advocate. And this week he adds children's author to the menu with his new book, Billy and the Giant Adventure. And he joins me now, Jamie Oliver. Lovely to talk to you. How are you doing? Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Oh, it's so nice to chat to you. First of all, congratulations are in order on two fronts on the book, obviously. But you, Jules and the kids had uh, a very special celebration recently, too. Yeah, we got remarried. You did. We did did our vow. You did. I'm I'm trying to stay romantic. (laughs) Uh, You were Um, renewing your vows after how many years? 23 years. We wanted to do it on, on our 20th. We always sort of thought it would be nice to sort of have a little moment to sort of do that but then covid obviously got in the way how dare it but yeah like you know i've got i've got five kids the two eldest ones have kind of flown the nest and they're at uni and they're sort of getting jobs and um and i just thought it would be probably it's probably one of the last holidays as a family like before boyfriends and other things that happen in parents lives so uh, yeah we just did our vows and and uh, it was actually really really nice oh. and i think i enjoyed it the most of everyone <laughs> oh it looked so special and did the kids know that that was on the cards did you all know like was it a yeah, community affair yeah i think they did know it but i think the nice thing about those sort of things is that you know you get dressed up and then there's actually a service like mm. there was only one other person on this little fine tiny tiny little sandy island it was it was very idyllic and and um so it, it kind of had that sort of grand not grandeur like importance and and it was really nice for our little kids to sort of see that their mum and dad are still tight and i guess as they start leaving the nest we're sort of there no matter what yeah, sort of. I'm being very romantic, but I guess that's the point, right? It's it's a uh, it's a nice thing to do. Well, I still say that one of the most special moments for our wedding day was having our daughter there. She was two at the time, and mm. uh, yeah, it was just it was kind of that message of family and unity, and it was yeah, it was lovely. And do you know what was interesting is like the words in the ceremony really, really resonate when you do it the second time. The first time round, everyone's pretending because you haven't done it yet. Yes, but like. Every single word you've done it, you smelt it, you felt it. You've, you've, you've for better and for worse. Like you really have. If you've done twenty years, you've, you've been through it. And of course, there'll be people listening that have done thirty years and forty years and yeah, maybe yeah. fifty if you're lucky. So, yeah, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. And you guys have come through a lot. I mean, Poppy is twenty, Daisy's nineteen, Petal is thirteen, mm. Buddy is twelve, River is six. Like that's a lot of rearing. It's a lot of family. It's a lot of uh, disagreements. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fights. It's a, a lot, lot of love. Of- personalities and traits and yeah and and you know as a parent like we're all baffled by the job you know <laughs> i might have done it five times and i'm i'm trying to breed an irish style family here but it's, it's you know it, it's not easy and, and there's lots of learnings along the way and and no one gets it all right so i think look it's 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 good to try and 
keep it together if you can. And, and um, yeah, I, I was excited. And we'd never had a holiday like that. We'd never been Yeah, you were uh, in the Maldives, right? Yeah, we'd never done a White Sands holiday. I'd never seen that. That was amazing, just as you would imagine. Um, never done a hot holiday in Easter. So there were lots of firsts. Never done scuba diving. Blew my mind. Stingrays. Turtles. Fish like you would never imagine of all shapes and sizes. So, yeah, there was lots of different things that I saw. All right. Well, talking about firsts, um, I mean, as I said, you've written over 30 cookbooks. So Billy and the Giant Adventure, this is your first children's book. So why was it important for you to do this? Look, it wasn't actually intentional. I didn't intend to do what I've done, which is publish this book. Really and truly, I would would put the kids to bed. um, I would read to them. As they're growing up, this was actually with Petal and Buddy. I'm dyslexic, so I've always, like, words have always been my enemy, and they've always freaked me out a bit. And, of course, I can read, but I I didn't read my first book until I was 35. And primarily that's because I fall asleep after 10 pages and I can't focus and the words do weird things. And um, when you're like that, your kids get better than you at reading quite quick. So my kids was like, (laughs) don't read. Um, Can you read us a story from your head? So that's what I would then start doing. And it wasn't whimsical and romantic. It was like I was dreaming of them being asleep and having a gin and tonic. Um, (laughs) What I started doing was randomly doing stories, but I started recording them so I could continue the narrative and the characters. And then after like, you know, a whole bunch of months, I had all these stories. And then over lockdown, because I'm so frightened of words, and, and I'm not dramatizing that. I think if anyone that's listening that has the same relationship with words and mm. focus and getting on, you know, I've never had shortage of ideas mm. and fantasy. And I love stories and I love being told stories. But the idea of writing is a nightmare. So um, I had it on dictaphone. I had it transcribed. And then I started creating like little stickies and building up a room, physical room of like characters and views. And, 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 I, and I ended up writing this book and... I didn't really present it to my team until not that long ago. Um, took it to Puffin. And now it's a book and it's in the shops, like as of, you know, just the other day and, and um, Billy and the Giant Adventure. And I'm super proud of it. Jamie Oliver in the afternoon with Catherine Thomas. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, finding comfort, advice and support online. Sasha Hamrogue is the writer and founder of Mamas Working 9 to 5 and Beyond. Yeah, welcome, Sasha. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks Great for being be here. here. Thanks so much. So why would anyone want to be on a mum's group? <laughs> First question, straight well, out. Well, I certainly wasn't part of one and never really uh, imagined that I would be. Um, but when I had my my first daughter in 2017, um, I had this blissful maternity leave. It was, I mean, I know that's not everyone's experience, but I just loved having this little baby girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and my purpose was so clear. I knew yeah. exactly what I had to do. I knew exactly what I had to do each day. It was looking after and caring for this little baby. And it was quite clear for me. But when things started to change was when I went back to work. And I thought, oh, dear God, how does anyone do this? And I couldn't figure out the balance. Um, So I decided, well, okay, I don't have the answers. Maybe I could, there's got to be other women out there who are struggling with this or maybe have the answers. So I decided to start a group. Um, I didn't know where to start it. I thought, um... Facebook wasn't necessarily the place I wanted to do it, yet I knew that Facebook groups were kind of still continuing to be popular, um, and they were a great place for people to build community. 
Mm-hmm. So we started there. It was called Mama's Working 9 to 5 and Beyond because I wanted to make sure everyone felt welcome. I think all mothers are working mothers no matter what they're doing. Um, and that was the start. I didn't think anyone would join, of course, as you, you know, when you start anything like this. But slowly, lots of women did. And the conversation has grown since there. And it's just been such a wonderful, supportive place. To, I, I, I suspect to, to understand why you had to kind of ask the cosmos. Yeah. Uh, we need to go back to your, I think your mother. Let's talk about your mum for a little sure, while, will we? Yeah, tell, no tell, me, tell me about her, her name and <laughs> yeah. where she was from and why you have an American accent, even though you're very Irish. Of course. Or both, let's face it. In, in this day of days. <laughs> exactly. That celebrate <laughs> both traditions. <laughs> okay, so tell us a bit about your mum. Sure, yeah. I love the chance to talk about Great. her. Um, my mom's name was Angela Kelly and she was from Tipperary, Balna in Tipperary. Um, and um, yeah, her and I had, a, you know, a very close and wonderful relationship. Good. But Sadly, she did pass away before I had my children. Um, and so that is an important part of the storyline, mm. for sure. My mm. dad had passed away as well five years before she did. So my parents were both gone um, when I, when I, my husband and I found out we were pregnant with our first child. So it was definitely navigating those waters without that family unit. And there was so much I, I really didn't know. And I kind of definitely craved that um, that information, the simple information, you know, that felt like it mattered so much. And I really needed other women and other mothers to help me navigate that. You're, you're the American connection being... Sure. Yeah, my parents met in New York City. Oh, uh, a great Irish story. My dad was from Leitrim. Um, so they met in New York City, which is where I grew up. Um, so that was their love story. They met over there. And so I had a very Irish upbringing in Queens. Yeah, uh, like so ima- many. As you can imagine. Was it exactly. Queens that they were celebrating the, the, the a big match win last weekend? Exa- Leitrim, exactly. And my dad was from Leitrim, so oh, I was... I was Amazing. I know. Because it looked like it was a scene from Balana later on. <laughs> exactly. But there they were in Queens. Like, it was I such know. an Irish pocket of culture. And it really is. And that's, yeah. you know, that, that pocket of culture is where I spent my young years. Okay. And it was a wonderful place to do that. Um, but I literally, I, I didn't really know any American people. I know that sounds strange. I really only was surrounded by that. Irish community. Yes. Um, I had a full Irish accent until I was, uh, you know, until I went to school. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so my, my, you know, my parents had that uh, American dream story, I suppose, uh, where they started a life there. And how did they end up come switching back, doubling back here? So my mom stayed. My mom lived in America until she passed. Uh, they did split up and my dad was, was had moved back here in mm-hmm. his later years. Um, so I still, you know, I, I again, I live here. So we kind of had that international across the water life. Mm-hmm. Um, but my mom, yeah, my mom was in America until she passed in uh, 2015. And my condolences to you, by the way, and and because she was obviously a very important person in in your life. And when you when you became pregnant, uh, was she foremost to the in in your in your in your brain? Yeah, I have to say, you know, um, it's a really precious story to me. But the the day before she passed, her and I, um, she was in she was really comfortable in a lovely hospice, which, as anyone who's ever gone through that knows, that that's a privilege for your life to. To, to end up there but she um, we were chatting and I had my head on her on her lap she was rubbing my hair and uh, she said have a baby honey <laughs> and I'd always wanted to my husband and I always wanted to but there was so much going on you know when you have sick parents and you're building your career and there's all those things happening at the same time you know life gets caught up uh, but she said that and so I kind of felt almost like when I did find out the news that that, that I was going to have a child that she was connected to that moment um, and of course I, I almost you know I think a lot of people will relate to this who have lost someone. I thought to text her 
to tell her yeah. the news when you know when I found out. It is one of the the, the bizarre uh, moments in in modern grief is the the phone in the mobile. Mm-hmm. And the phone number, the, the phone, phone name, number. and the voice message, the oh, voice recording. So much. So. You know, I hear people saying that the recently deceased person that they loved had recorded a voice message, and they will call the number to hear the message. You know, it, it's 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 something that previous generations never had. No. But here we are. And a lot of people who maybe have deleted messages, and then they just can't believe they've deleted those those voice messages. The voice is so important. Yeah. I mean, you know, with what we're doing right now, sure. voice and audio is so important. And I think capturing those moments of hearing someone you love, their voice is just precious. And Ryan asked Sasha about her podcast with Venetia Quick called Grief Encounters. So I think there's probably a thread between all of this, That's between so the moms group and between, yeah. between the podcast Grief Encounters, which is un- much like you, Ryan. I think hearing people's stories is just so valuable and that's something I've been passionate about throughout my whole my whole life um, and grief encounters was part of that I mean I think for you know for anyone who's been through it grief is kind of the ultimate undoing it is the thing that reaches us in our core and hearing those stories from people was something that Venetia and I felt felt um, passionate about and wanted to talk to people about the people they loved and the people they lost and we got to do that um, for a series um, called Grief Encounters. And it was just, I mean, we had some of the most incredible guests you could ever imagine telling the most intimate stories of love in their life, of children that they lost, of partners that they lost, mm. of parents that they lost. Um, it was an absolute honour to be able yeah. to do it. It's funny as you're speaking, um, Christy Dignam from Aslan yep. uh, got in touch with us last week through his wife, Catherine. And you know Christy's not not, not yeah, in great in great health, but he's in great shape, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. And he said, any chance you come over to the house and, and conduct an interview with me? Wow. Um, and I said, I'd be honoured. And I went over uh, with Siobhan outside and we went over and did Damien on the sound and we spent an hour together talking about it all. Wow. It was devastating mm-hmm. and beautiful, to use your word, but also Dark, darkly humorous. No, he's so funny. He's really funny. funny. You've met him, obviously. I have. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. And we laughed and said, you know, Christy, for the 10 years that you were coming in and out on the Late Late Show, we always said it was going to be your last performance. Here, this is your sixth last performance. (laughs) You know, we were laughing about that. And and he was laughing about it. But anyway, I've just by way of our conversation, we, we we're gonna broadcast that interview for the whole show pretty much on Monday morning. Oh, so I think incredible. people Yeah, yeah, at, at at his request. And um it, it, it was incredible because you talk about grief encounters, which is a great name. Mm-hmm. But here's a man on the cusp of maybe another moment, uh and maybe a last moment. Maybe, hopefully not, but maybe. And when you're talking to somebody, it was like something I've never done before because people don't like to confront the most obvious reality of them all, <laughs> which is the end. And the inevitability no for to, all of us. Yeah, but no one wants to, be- yeah. to believe it's no. real because otherwise you'd be miserable yeah. and you wouldn't enjoy life at all. Of course. Um, so I can imagine the stories you unearthed with Venetia and Venetia had been through her, her own Horrible grief when of you, course. especially and especially with younger people dying. It's, it's just it's not right, as you yeah. well know. Um, what was there a was there a thread, a strand in the all in the stories? Do you think that people told about life and death and the inevitable? I think everyone 
It was just love, Ryan. Yeah, yeah love is, <laughs> just, but that's lovely. That, love is the answer, is the they? deep yeah. love that people felt for the people they lost and what that, the mark that that leaves when they're gone. Mm. And be, people being changed forever, I think, really. Their life being changed forever, who they are being changed forever and then how they go into the world living with that. Um, you know, mm. I think that in grief, we talk a lot about the fact that it never goes away. You just learn to you learn to live with it, and it changes you. And I think that was kind of the the common thing. I mean, the strength of some people would just was so staggering. And there was many many episodes where I sat with tears pouring down my face really? while we were, of course, and trying to be so respectful, but just being. You know, we talked to um, Jane McKenna, the, who founded Laura Lynn. You know, she lost her two children. And That's an extraordinary story. Hearing those kinds of stories of people who go on, and, yeah. and it's just remarkable. Um, and I think we talked a lot about the, how uncomfortable people are talking about grief. Yeah, I think that's, that's a changing great, that's a, a bit. Great point. You know, yeah. that does seem to be yeah. changing, and I'm so glad that that is. But we definitely, definitely, that was a theme of, of people feeling very uncomfortable talking about loss and and not knowing what to say, and 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 yes. maybe helping those conversations a little bit. Yeah, I was talking to a, a, a woman I met recently, actually in Paris and at, at an event, and she was saying the last time we were here, we, we talked, we did a message for a person who's since passed away. And as she was saying this, she started to cry and she didn't quite know where to look. And I said to her, please keep crying because your friend is 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 alive now as yeah. we're talking. And, and that's that's really important. And um, equally, uh, gosh, my, my cousin Brian over in, in Connemara was telling me the other day, that uh, he said, oh, I, I'm t- he was talking about a friend of a deceased friend of his. And as he was talking to this, obviously a very wise man, he was saying, oh, I hope I'm not boring you or something to t- to by talking about my friend. And the guy said, no, in life we die twice. We die once physically, obviously, when you're, when you're, when you're, you're buried and that's the end. But we die twice when people stop talking about us. Mm. So for you to talk about your friend is means that he's not... He hasn't passed away fully. Yeah. It's a lovely way of putting it. It really is. And uh, honestly, when I you wish... asked me my mother's name there, I haven't said my mother's name in a really long time. How did so it, it feel really... when you said it? It just I felt like I was honoring her. It felt great to be able to say her name out loud. And I think you're right. I think it does it is really important to to talk about the people we love for as long as we can. Sasha Hamrogue from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on the Today programme, Catherine Carton was urging Philip Edger Hayes to throw those curtains wide and just look at all that dust. My next guest assures me that it is sunny outside. (laughs) So with the return of that sunshine, at least in patches anyway, it could be the kind of morning where you jump out of bed, you pull the curtains back and you realise that your windows need cleaning, that there's dust everywhere and cobwebs dangling in the corners. (laughs) It might be time for the big spring clean and Catherine Carton. Good morning. Author and DIY expert here with her usual helpful tips to put us all to absolute shame. Where is the best place to start? So I think I always start with, so like you said, you open the blind and the sun shines through and it's a bit harsher uh, when the clocks change. So you start to kind of notice the skirting boards, the inside of the windows. Maybe you have wooden blinds and you're starting to see all the dust spots behind the bed. So On top of your usual kind of cleaning that you might do day to day, I think every now and again, it's good to get stuck in and do things like the skirting boards. Because how often would you do your skirting boards? And answer honest. (laughs) But my my first problem is, why do we have skirting boards at all? Why did people not just build the walls all the way down to the floor so we wouldn't have these dust collection devices? (laughs) A skirting board is actually designed to protect your wall and the plaster from damage. 
From being kicked by people. Oh, yes, I, and I, it keeps carpenters in jobs too. But I do have a little <laughs> hack if you have uh, some dusty skirting boards. So I seen this on the internet and some people said that it does work. So if you have, you know, tumble dryer sheets that you put in mm. a tumble dryer to make them smell nice mm-hmm. and anti-static. Apparently, if you wipe down your skirting board or wall panelling is really popular at the moment, but it also collects a lot of dust. Mm-hmm. So if you wipe down the surface, apparently the anti-static magic that in these tumble dryer sheets will repel the dust. Now, I always say dust has to go somewhere, but it may just mean that I might go to the floor Where it can be hoovered, absolutely, board. because yeah. you can't really ever properly hoover your skirting boards. Yeah. And also a simple kind of cleaner um, Vinegar, baking soda, raid the kitchen presses. The internet is mad for the vinegar and water solution sprays. So if you're looking for a really cheap spray solution to do a bit of dusting and also clean so the inside of the Are you suggesting windows. this as an alternative to chemical cleaners? Yes. Not something that's necessarily better, but just something that might be a little Alternative, bit... but it does the job. So let's say inside of the windows and the outside, if you get a spray bottle and you mix half of it with... Now I stress distilled vinegar, not malt. Malt will leave it smelling a bit fish and chip shop. So half distilled vinegar, half water, and you can pop in either some lemon juice or essential oils I, to take I the smell out of it. I knew that we weren't far away from a, a, a perfumed addition. We have to put a little bit of perfume in. But um, it may smell like vinegar for the couple of seconds as you're using it, but once that solution is dry and wiped away, the smell will go. And that's something I've used for the past couple of years, and it's great. I'm very good at ignoring dust on blinds and dust oh, on skirting boards. Yeah. But the thing that you're absolutely right about the more intense sunlight coming mm-hmm. through the windows you do notice is the cobwebs. Oh, the cobwebs. Uh, I'm, see, I'm short as well, so I don't look at my ceilings often. It's only if I'm walking down the stairs and it'll, I'll catch a glimpse. So um, a good one for this is, you know those uh, extendable mops? and they have like a flat bottom on them they're not like Mm -hmm. your usual ones if you uh, get a microfiber cloth and a bucket of warm soapy water put some washing up liquid in it give it like a wring it out Uh, you can also pop in some essential oils as well if you want Uh, (laughs) tie this to the end of the mop I just like it to smell nice Tie it to the end of the mop. I'm laughing and then wipe with you, Catherine. I'm laughing with you, okay? <laughs> Tie it to the end of the mop and then just wipe down the wall, and that will take away all the cobwebs, but will also leave it smelling really nice. Okay. Um, there is a question that has been written by one of obviously the punier members of the Today with Claire Bird <laughs> show team. So I'm going to ask you the question as it's written here. They okay. want to know window cleaning. Should you do it yourself? Of course you should do it yourself. Yes, but. You know what? I have to hold my hands okay, up. Okay, unless you live on the 13th floor of a... Well, I I live in a bungalow block. and I have a cleaner who does the outside. And he, he's good value. He's only 20 quid. So if I think... Okay, and you are you short. You. We'll give you that. Yeah, I do the inside though. But yeah, you can absolutely, absolutely do the outside. Now, my window cleaner did say you're not supposed to use tap water on, on your uh, windows to clean it. Oh, Apparently really? it leaves spots, like hard water spots. So I would try the vinegar and water solution uh, to clean it down. Dainty Dress Diaries, Catherine Carton with Philip Outer Hayes in the morning. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.